Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist and author based on the west side of Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictive compulsive behaviors. Welcome to my podcast, named after my recent book, It's Not About the Sex. Here we have honest conversations related to compulsive sexual behavior and trauma, all from a sexual health perspective. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints and practical strategies toward establishing greater intimacy and a more deeply connected life. Let's begin. Hello, Sue. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? It's going really well. How's it going for you? Good, good. We are recording, is today the very last day of September? 30 days has September. You don't even have to say any more. No, you'd stop right there. Just stop. (laughs) It's the best month. You don't have to do the whole poem, but you know that poem, right? Exactly. I think I learned it in first grade. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. But I was thinking about autumn since we're here and how this usually in LA is one of the hotter months that we have. And we're getting a lot of gray right now and a lot of drizzle and, and, um, sort of inclement weather that we don't typically see, including the tropical storm a few weeks back. And we're going to talk a little bit about depression today navigating depression. And we'll talk a little bit about how weather and seasons and seasonal affective disorder, as they call it now, SAD for short. Um, um, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. The acronym speaks its truth. So what came first? Exactly. That's right. (laughs) But um, yeah, so I'm really excited to talk about this with you, actually, because it's been something that we've touched on, but haven't spent a whole episode with. No, I appreciate that. And yeah, this time of year, well, being from the East Coast, it's kind of when you start to do your fall cleanup to get ready for the, you know, what's coming next. That's right. They don't like to say it, but the hibernation. And like, I really equate this time of year as almost like the new year, you know, how in the Jewish calendar, you just celebrate a Rosh Hashanah. It's, it's the new year and we would go back to school this time of year. So my calendar does kind of my internal clock and calendar does look at the seasons as uh, different times of year for sure to have different emotions. For sure. And and we're creatures of habit. So we kind of mark the calendar in certain ways. And also, I, I think that there's something about the changing of the seasons, especially in, in parts of the country that have more dis, um, distinct seasons that affects us in different ways. I was just talking to a colleague who's up in Alaska, mm. and, and she says that the darkness and and the change of seasons is very, very difficult for a lot of people. But I thought I would start our discussion talking a little bit about my own experience around depression and the autumn season, mm-hmm. because it's it's always been a bittersweet time of year. It's, it's actually my birthday month, the end of October, as you know, mm-hmm. the same day as your son. And at the same time, um, you know, the leaves are changing and it's getting cooler and and then it gets darker early. And I don't know if everyone has this reaction, but it seems like it's almost universal that that it affects us in certain ways. And mm-hmm. for me, I know as as a teenager, I always looked forward 
to October in particular. And at the same time, I actually felt more melancholy during October in particular, whether it was my birthday or, or the Jewish holidays or the the cold or the dark, who knows? And and that went into college, I would say as a teenager and as a college mm. kid, I, I experienced the same kind of thing. And it was always kind of a challenging time mood-wise for me. And it's been different uh, since I moved to California, but it's it's just different. It's not um, better. I think this is always kind of a bittersweet time of year that I need to pay extra attention to how to take care of myself and how to attend to my moods. Yeah. So, yeah. So what, what about you, Sue? Anything you want to add to, yeah. to this conversation about your experience? It, well, echoing exactly what you were saying about the fall season and, you know, back East, the days would get it would be pitch black at like four o'clock in the afternoon. And I was finding myself turning every single light on and making these light boxes and just really surrounding myself with light. But it almost felt like a heavy blanket being put on top of me and not only affecting the feeling of having a burden, but also, you know, having some depression around that. So it's really what one of the key factors to move to a more sunny location. And yeah, the days do get shorter, but you're not feeling that coldness or I was, you know, it definitely, it's still there. Like you mentioned, a little melancholy type feeling, but knowing that it's going to be 70 degrees or 80 degrees, it really changes my mood you know just mm -hmm. having to be able to have sun on my face every day and then feeling that warmth really does help my mood being aware of how you're feeling and knowing that the next day is going to be different yeah really has you know and like my training through learning to be a counselor and finding happiness and joy has really helped with my mindset and, and yeah. getting out of, but I kind of feel like it's okay once in a while to have a rainy day, you know, and just, just embrace it for what it is. We're yeah. all human. Yeah. We all have shifts in hormones and shifts in, in moods and experiences and mm -hmm. dysregulation. So mm -hmm. yeah, just being aware of that yeah. is helpful. For sure. And we're going to talk more about that as we continue our discussion. I want to share a quick story though. My first summer, I came out here in June of 88. So it's been actually 35 years, which is hard to believe. Yeah. And I was living in Sherman Oaks with my aunt at the time. And it was the middle of October and it was 112 <laughs> degrees in Woodland Hills. And I don't know about you, but that was just unnatural for me. Yeah. It was my first summer out here from New Jersey. And I just couldn't believe that it could be that hot. Right. So that was like the the other end of the extremes that also can be rather fantasy shattering because I had no idea that 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 kind of extreme heat was was possible. Possible, actually. yeah. No, I know. I remember our first Thanksgiving out here was hot. Yeah, so yeah. warm. I'm like, we're eating outside. Like this is odd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we talk about? the differences between clinical depression and sadness, because a lot of folks don't really discriminate between the two. They just throw around yes. throw around the word depression. 
And so sometimes you might hear someone describe their mood by saying simply that they're feeling down, mm -hmm. right? That's one thing, or possibly down in the dumps is maybe an old fashioned way of saying that they're a little sad, or, or maybe they just say they're feeling flat, right? Mm -hmm. um, or, or sometimes bored. I think sometimes people say they feel bored when actually they're yes. feeling sad or, or depressed. Or I like the word melancholy. I'm not sure why, but it reminds me of reading Hamlet in high school. <laughs> and and so melancholy actually I think is a very textured word yeah. for for sadness or possibly depression. But as a clinician, I'm always trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together to understand as best I can what, what someone is truly experiencing and what they're sharing with me, right? Right. So there's no x-ray or EKG to detect clinical depression, right? Not as of now. Not as of now, but I think we're getting closer actually to be able to, to detect through brain scanning uh, what's really going on. But when I'm with someone in the office, I'm really just asking questions, right? I'm just investigating and exploring with them what what they're feeling on the inside. So what are um, some of the questions you might ask someone? Yeah, so I'm gonna use myself as an example because I think that will help illustrate what we're talking about. So you, you and I met in college. So I think this was possibly the year before I met you, so mm -hmm. around 84 or so. Um, I, I fell into a, a depression in, in the fall um, of, of being at UMass and my mood would be really, really down almost every day, right? So that's one thing that we ask our clients is, is this something that you're experiencing more days than not? Mm -hmm. And I happen to sleep a lot, which sometimes is called hypersomnia. It's the opposite of insomnia and hypersomnia or insomnia, any kind of sleep disturbance on a regular basis is part of clinical depression. I ate very little. My appetite was way down. Some people eat a lot and have huge appetite. Some people have very little appetite. I had a weak appetite um, and I lost quite a bit of weight. So that's also a, a sign physiologically of clinical depression. At the time, my libido, my sex drive was, was um, way down. Others will become hypersexual or have a, a lot of libido, a lot of sex drive. So it can go in either direction. And and things that that gave me pleasure in the past were really non-existent. Things like um, playing the saxophone at the time. I just lost interest in it at, at the time. I did it because I, I was um, obliged to, because I was part of various groups. Mm -hmm. But um, the, the term for that is anhedonia. And anhedonia refers to the loss of pleasure in activities that you have found pleasurable in the past. And of course, if depression gets severe enough, there can be suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts. There can be suicidal gestures. And of course, suicide attempts can be common as well, especially if clinical depression is not treated. So I had some gestures, some suicidal gestures at the time, um, but I never hurt myself too badly. It was more actually an attempt to feel something is mm. how I look at it in retrospect. 
but I was truly one of the lucky ones because, you know, as, as we know, many people kill themselves if depression is untreated. And I went into therapy at the time. I, I got help. I um, was able to acknowledge that it was just a, a very, very challenging time. And, and, and I just didn't feel like myself. People were looking at me like, what's wrong with him? You know, my parents were really concerned, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I'll talk a little bit more about that when we start talking about medications in a few minutes. What did you do back then? Did you find a therapist on campus or how did you, how did you deal with it? I, I did. I, I found a therapist on campus. Um, she happened to be a psychologist who was um, in training. She wasn't licensed yet, mm -hmm. but she was great. And, and she was very um, patient and, um, and was a great listener and really helped me understand. Uh, she educated me to what was going on and actually depression runs in my family. And so that was a clue that genetically there was that predisposition. And then you know, she really took care of the psychological piece. And then she referred me to a psychiatrist um, who put me on a mood stabilizer. And for me, that happened to make a huge difference, keeping in mind that this was the 80s. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this was before the medications like Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Lexapro, none of those medications were around at the time. Now, I want to preface all of this by saying that I'm not a doctor, I'm not a physician. And I'm not recommending any medication or any one particular medication. I just know that things were getting bad enough for me that it was time for me to consider medication. And I happened to respond really positively to medication where after a few months, I was almost symptom free. How do you recommend people know like when to get in touch with a psychiatrist or consider even medication? Yeah, it, it can go one of two ways. If you're wanting to go directly to a physician, you go to your primary doctor and, and either they or they will refer you to a psychiatrist um, to be evaluated if they feel that that's necessary. I, I do have a bias. I think that psychiatrists go to school for a long time to study psychiatry and, and psychopharmacology. And so they're the experts when it comes to psychiatric medications and the subtleties, really the nuances that go along with medications. But a lot of folks will, will go to a therapist or a counselor and, um, and will start with talk therapy or, mm -hmm. or talk, talk counseling. And that's really a great place to start. And hopefully the clinician that they see will be savvy enough about depression that if they feel it would be helpful to get a, a, a psyche eval. Um, then, then they'll refer to one of their colleagues. Now, one way that I think about all this, Sue, and this is just my own litmus test that I use, is that depression and episodes of depression obviously are uh, emotionally painful, right? It's it's a painful time um, intrapsychically, internally. And sometimes that can be treated in a lot of different ways without medication. But if somebody's truly suffering, there's a difference between pain and suffering. And there's that old expression, can't remember who originally came up with this, but pain is inevitable and suffering is optional, mm. right? So we all have pain. 
it's part of life. But if it moves into the realm of suffering, it's time to get help. And sometimes that includes medications, sometimes not. But we're going to talk later about all the different possibilities that, that our listeners can consider before they even consider medications. Yeah. So, I mean, I've worked in the field, right? I've worked for a psychiatrist and I see people who come in specifically because they're suffering. And obviously there's good psychiatrists and bad psychiatrists, right? As with everything. So I just want to caution people around that because sometimes the medications like long-term are going to have different effects on people Mm -hmm. and just you need to be your own advocate and of course like going to someone who knows about all these medications and they're always changing um but just i just want to caution people to just be aware of side effects and 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 bring it up to the the psychiatrist because some side effects are not worth being on the drug for a long time for so just don't go ahead and keep taking something without saying something if there's something affecting you in in a in a opposite way um i've experienced somebody who was on the wrong medication and it was affecting their mood and it was it was difficult and it took a while for them to say something to their psychiatrist but i just wanted to caution people around that you know just only you know your body and we're all going to have some sort of reaction to the medications and and i'm so glad you're you're sharing that sue because our healthcare system is so limited in terms of resources and and how busy doctors are nowadays and so advocating for oneself and and really being um careful about who they see for any kind of mental health physical health and any kind of um health-related issues. So I I couldn't agree more about that. And I just wanted to share a quick story about a a psychiatrist colleague of mine. He's actually an integrative, uh, more holistically trained um, psychiatrist. And he talks about medications as a cast Mm -hmm. that we put on the cast to strengthen the emotional muscle. And during the time that the cast is on, we hopefully learn additional coping strategies, and ways to navigate the depression, right? So after a period of time that you're on a medication, could be six months, 12 months, 18 months, whatever, we take off the cast and and see how we're doing without the medication. So I love that idea. Not that everybody can go on a medication short term. Some people do choose to be on medications longer term. But the idea of a cast, I think, is excellent because it's to get over that bridge, whatever that bridge may be. Yeah. And it might be difficult for some people to to feel like, oh my gosh, am I going to be on this forever? Um, but also it's important to, like you say, navigate it, you know, get to the bottom of it and do some work around it because that's yeah. all part of it. I know we do get stuck a lot of times in repetitive behaviors and moods and mm-hmm. um, and and things like that. And it's not, I'm not saying it's a the pills are a magic wand, but it's nice at, to look at it as like, this is something that's going to help me. Um, and I like that view of the cast. Mm-hmm. So, so what about people who stay on medications for a long term? Well, it, it's different for everyone. So there's no cookie cutter answer to this. And there's no right or wrong about how long you stay on a medication. You know, some people will benefit from shorter term experiences with meds and and sometimes 
um, people will go on longer terms. And again, sometimes it's trial and error. I think that's why we call it practicing, practicing medicine, practicing psychiatry, um, but really collaborating with your psychiatrists and deciding what's right for you and knowing when it's time to take a break and see how it goes uh, without the meds. I think that's that's the most important thing, that you're never locked into anything. Um, can we just take a deeper look at like depression? Wh where does it even come from? That's That's a great question. So we actually don't know for sure from person to person, but there definitely can be a genetic predisposition. So in my family, if you go back generation to generation, depression and mood issues were part of my family background. Um, it can also be related to trauma. Okay, we've talked a lot about trauma on our podcast. And because trauma can be so dysregulating, one of the things that can happen is that mood can be affected, especially uh, in the direction of a down regulation or uh, depression. It can also be very specific to an event, uh, like a breakup. I don't know about you, Sue, but I went through a breakup many, many years ago, and it was actually one of the worst episodes of depression I ever had. That loss was just tremendous. And it wasn't just about the breakup. Mm. It was a deeper uh, kind of, it just penetrated a deeper part of me that was uh, hard to even put words to. So yeah, so I think any of those things can be a possibility and there's probably more that I'm not even mentioning, but I think depression can come in lots of shapes and forms for many, many different reasons. Yeah. And as I, I remember, we did do a dual diagnosis a while back, um, an episode on that. So clinical depression and compulsive sexual behavior can be an example of the dual diagnosis. Absolutely. You know, I think traditionally when they came up with the term dual diagnosis, they were thinking more about alcohol and drugs mm. and and then a mental health diagnosis like PTSD or depression or generalized anxiety or something like that. But if we extend the term dual diagnosis to be any addictive compulsive behavior and any mental health type diagnosis of any kind, that's how I look at it. So mm -hmm. sexual compulsivity and depression often show up together, right? And let's keep in mind that the attempt to feel better is through the compulsive behavior. So if someone's feeling depressed and they have a tendency to act out sexually, then they are actually attempting to feel better, mm -hmm. to feel different, maybe to feel more in this case. And and so it, it just takes all, all possibilities. So um, even though we're not going to talk much more deeply about this today, you know, we're learning all the time, all the time about the correlation of depression, uh, trauma, nervous system dysregulation, attachment ruptures, and compulsive sexual behavior. They all can be interwoven and from a clinical perspective, really need to be disentangled mm. so that we're not confused about what we're seeing in front of us, that um, that there's really, we, we need to be treating all of the issues. Yeah. Moving forward, I wanted to share with our listening audience something called Depression Busters. Ooh. Now, <laughs> I know, Depression Busters was something I put together years ago, many years ago, because so many of my clients were saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I really want to go on medication. 
is there anything else I can do for myself that would might make a difference? And I said, okay, let me just come up with a list of possibilities. And of course, this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list, but yeah. uh, I thought you and I could go back and forth. We can alternate and and just share what uh, what I came up with many, many years ago. Okay. Okay. I'll go first. Um, so we have individual therapy. Right. And then, of course, after individual therapy, we have group therapy. And support groups and 12-step groups. Right. And I just want to say that the reason why groups and 12-step groups are so important when it comes to depression is because depression can be so isolating. Exactly. And, yeah. and so because we're biologically wired for connection and belonging, by going to a group, by pushing ourselves and trying to get to a group, even if it's a Zoom meeting, whatever it takes, um, that can be an antidepressant in itself. And then the Surgeon General just came out with a topic about loneliness and how loneliness is almost an epidemic right now, especially in our elderly mm -hmm. um, community, but that loneliness can lead to depression. And these are mm -hmm. all great things to help with that as well. For sure. Um, For yeah. sure. So the next in our list is exercise, or we could call it movement. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be exercise. And, and sports of any kind. It could be walking or swimming or anything, really. Any kind of movement. Love it. Um, yeah, so this is a good one. Nutritional balance. Limit your caffeine and your alcohol. Anything that's going to activate you or dysregulate you, I guess. <laughs> that's right. And then consistent sleep. If you're able to get consistent sleep, meaning going to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time, that's what we mean by consistent sleep. And hopefully there can be a number of hours. For me, it's seven to eight. Mm -hmm. Seven is good enough. Um, but usually there's somewhere in that range. And, you know, just wearing your Fitbit or your iWatch or whatever, there's an app on here. Josh and I have both been monitoring our sleep and it will tell you how much you go into REM and deep sleep. And so he's really working on like his core and, and deep sleep. Um, Fascinating. Ch changing some things before you go to bed is important. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what are some other things, Sue? Okay. Brain spotting. We talked about that. Somatic experiencing. Good things. Right. Right. So somatic therapies that, and those require a, usually a licensed therapist or uh, someone fully trained in those areas. And then finding inspirational books and articles that mm. they could be about depression or self-improvement, or they really could be about anything. If you find someone inspirational, read a biography, um, but definitely reading uh, things that, that are uplifting and, and feel like they're helping you um, get a little bit more insight and awareness. Um, journaling goes right along with that. Um, and I'll skip to the next one. Yoga, mindfulness, meditation, mindful self-compassion, mm -hmm. all, all wonderful things to practice. For sure. And then there's spirituality. And in 12-step, we often talk about 12-step um, programs as a spiritual program and anything that you can do to explore spirituality. And, and I've said this before, but a colleague of mine says that whatever gives your life meaning, whatever gives your life meaning is spirituality. Okay. Love it. Volunteer or bring being of service to others. 
does wonders for ourselves, not only for others. Yeah. And again, if you're in 12 step program, being of service can be anything, uh, could be setting up chairs at a meeting, could be, uh, sponsoring someone could be, um, making an outreach call to someone who you think could use a little bit of contact. So yes, volunteering and being of service to others is huge. Also don't forget about music and dance. So with music, we're talking about listening to your favorite music, playing your favorite music, singing your favorite music, which I usually do in the shower because I don't want to disrupt anybody around me. Um, but music and dance and movement mm. is, is, is so soothing and healing. Yeah, for sure. And it's easy to create a playlist for yourself. You just have it. Um, hobbies, find a hobby, go to the beach, watch a movie, reading, hiking, just have fun. Yeah. And, and, and try and find the part of you that wants to play. I mean, sometimes in depression, the fun and the play gets muted. And so it could be anything like keep it simple. Just find a, a, a funny old movie that you like on, on Netflix and you know, just enjoy that time for yourself uh, with popcorn, hopefully. Um, and then there's classes, just taking classes, um, like mindful self-compassion, meditation classes are some of my recommendations. Um, any kind of community group, it could be Toastmasters if you want to learn how to speak publicly, et cetera. Yeah. And then, um, Sue, what, what else is on our list? We're almost, uh, almost yeah. there. I like this one, body work, acupuncture, chiropractic. It's all really good. Yeah. We're talking mind, body, spirit, right? Mm -hmm, so sure. yeah. not just talking about mental health. We're talking about the full wellness of, of what it means to, to heal from depression. And then there's um, a little um, non-traditional. It's funny we say that because they're actually the most traditional, but there's <laughs> homeopathic, Ayurvedic, and naturopathic um, physicians out there who are fantastic, who can also provide support for depression in a, in a non psychopharmacologic way. And, and then, then our very last <laughs> is what Sue psychopharmacology and medication, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. yeah. If anyone's interested, by the way, I'm, I'm happy to send my list of depression busters, um, to you. It, it's just a practical reminder that there's so many things we can do for ourselves or try and do for ourselves, even when we're feeling down and out. So, um, so that's just one, one reminder. So as we wrap up, Sue, I, I just really appreciate your collaboration in general and, and on this episode and want to remind our listeners that there's a fairly new national mm. mental health hotline. I don't know if everybody's aware of this, but all you have to do is dial 988. You know how we used to dial 911 automatically? 988 is the national mental health hotline. And someone will be there to talk with you about whatever you're going through. So please know that you don't have to be alone in whatever you're going through. There is help out there. So whatever you do, please stay connected. It's a wonderful message, Andrew. Thanks. Sure. <laughs> Thank you, Sue. All right. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening today. If you're so inclined, please give us a five-star rating 
and be sure to subscribe and share my podcast with those who may benefit. I look forward to you joining us the next time. And don't forget to stay connected.